The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Hello, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel. I'm the host for this podcast, and today's episode is episode number 213. When a person is addicted to drugs and or alcohol, the myriad of choices of treatment can be overwhelming. Narconon Ojai is a residential treatment facility that addresses the physical, spiritual, and mental aspects of addiction with a proven, holistic, drug-free, step-by-step program to free those trapped by addiction. For more information, call 866-231-5924. Today's episode is an interview with David Sanchez. David is the founder and director of Strike Out Against Drugs. Born in Redondo Beach, California, David Sanchez began learning about drugs at age nine when a neighbor offered him marijuana. By age 15, he was using harder drugs that first led to juvenile jail and eventually to multiple penitentiaries. The turning point came in 2012 when he finally conquered his addiction and then in 2014 when he began building on his own knowledge and studies of addiction and on ideas to develop and keep communities healthier, safer, and free of drugs. Let's talk to David Sanchez. David Sanchez, I know you are a busy guy. You have a star high goal. And I want to thank you for taking the time to tell your story to our listeners today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I read a little bit of your bio and I have to tell you, David, it scared me because what I always ask people on the podcast is, you know, when did you get started on drugs? And, you know, you said you were offered marijuana at nine years old, and I am going to let you tell your story, but I I had to make an editorial comment. My granddaughter is turning eight next month. And so when I hear that someone introduced you to marijuana at age nine, Eh, it it I feel I feel a little funky about that. I don't know what to say. Scary. But anyway, it is scary. That's the thing. So tell your story, David. How did how did you get started on drugs? How did you progress from there? And go ahead. So I want to start by saying that I'm I'm the actually the youngest of six boys and three girls. Um, in my family. Okay, your mother so, was a saint. That's all I'm going to say about that. My mother was a saint. Um, <laughs> My father, my mother worked a lot, so I was left home alone with my older brothers and sisters. Um, so a lot of the trouble that they got into kind of rolled its way down to David getting the damage done um, physically when I was a kid. I was bullied a lot in school. Um, I had a big mouth and a little body, so there was a lot of stuff going on in school that gave me an uneasy feeling in my younger years. Um, I was always looking for some type of release, didn't know what type of release that was going to be. Um, when, I, when I was saying when I was nine years old, I had a neighbor that, that um, introduced me to marijuana. Maybe he thought it was funny. Maybe he thought it was cool to see a, a nine-year-old kid high on marijuana. But what he didn't know was that, me smoking that marijuana at that age was going to end up changing the rest of my life. Um, because of all the stuff that I was going through 
um, as as a as a young teenager, um, or younger than teenager, when I smoked the marijuana, it kind of released all that stuff. I got high. I felt good. Um, all the stuff that was kind of happening in my life kind of went away um, for that time that I was high on the marijuana. And what happened was my brain kind of recorded that euphoric feeling um, and it never forgot. And so for the rest of my life, my brain, well, I mean, I created different points of, of euphoricness because, you know, the drugs got to bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger drugs. But um, it really goes back to that first time that I smoked marijuana that um, my brain recorded that feeling. And from then on, it knew what to do when I started having any types of uneasy feelings in my life. It already knew, go, go get high. It's going to make you feel better. Um, I progressed into you know, using heroin. I was a, at 15 years old. I was a full-on heroin addict. Um, you know, I went through the gauntlet of of all the drugs, all the all the most commonly used street drugs um, that you could think of. And because of the crowd that it brought me to, I started feeling better about myself because you know nobody nobody in that crowd really had any any self love to begin with. So I fit into that crowd of just polluting my body, destroying my life. You know, then came the criminal criminal actions um, at very young, doing burglaries and stuff to be able to support that euphoric feeling that I was always looking for in my life. And, um, you know, started going to, to jail at a young age. Um, I've done over 22 years in prison, um, basically all behind mm -hmm. my addiction. Um, yeah, okay. so... I just kept on getting deeper and deeper and deeper into my addiction um, where I just lost control over any type of being able to stay away from it or anything like that. Um, when I, when I, and, and when in 2012, um, I had just lost everything. I'm older now. Um, 2012, I had lost just everything that, I had. I was literally walking the streets, one set of clothing, no money, nobody to call. I had burned every bridge that I ever had in my life. My mother passed away while I was in prison. My father passed away while I was in prison. So that oh, no. time that I got out, when they were both gone, there was there was nobody for me to go to because. My brothers and sisters didn't want me around because I would steal from them. Um, I wasn't able to go to like family Christmases and things like that because they knew that I would sneak in the closet and get in their purse or something. I mean, I could go, but it would be like, David, sit right there. We're going to watch you the whole time. Um, so, you know, this, it just, it those that feeling of helplessness and that feeling of non-love that I, that I got from my mother and my father because they were the last two that really cared about me and showed me love. And then 
you know, I had lost them. Um, I wasn't, a- I wasn't able to, to, to function as a normal person. Um, I had a lot of resentments because I felt that my mother and my father passing away left me alone. Um, addiction is very selfish. <laughs> and, um, we, all we care about is ourselves. And I remember they let me go see her in the hospital um, because she was on life support. And um, when I got there, I remember thinking, you know, when she sees me, she's going to wake up. And then when she didn't wake up, I, I, I felt kind of like, you know, how dare you just leave me alone in this world? You know what I mean? How dare you not be able, me not having a place to go when I get out? How dare you not be able to send me packages no more? And I felt this, this almost like a rage against her instead of like, Jesus, my mother just passed away and I'm having these weird feelings about it. And it wasn't until later on in, in the years that that um, the, 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 the guilt and the pain of, of not really caring about what's really going on with her and the, being ashamed of thinking that way just kept me high all the time. Anytime I would be reminded of her, anytime I would, I would see somebody that looked like her, anytime that I would, you know, somebody would mention her name, I would feel this guilt in my brain because of the uneasy feeling. My brain said, well, David, you need to go get high so you don't have to feel these feelings no more. And so that just kept me high for years and years and years and years. Um, yeah, it's such a vicious cycle because you you feel guilty, feel so you get high, and then you feel guilty that you got high, so then you f- get high so that you don't feel guilty anymore. Right. You know, it's right. like it it. You know, that part of your story is something that we've come to understand after doing this podcast for four years. I also, I let you continue talking because I'm fascinated by your story, but, you know, we get lots of flack on social media when we say that marijuana is a gateway drug, but your history is another perfect example of that, of starting with marijuana. So, so, you know, you're exactly right because I did a, I did a social media experiment and I asked 100 people, can you remember the very first time you smoked marijuana? Almost, almost 100% of them could remember where they were at, who they were with, what they did. And then I asked the same people, can you remember the second, third, fourth, or fifth time you smoked marijuana? That became very cloudy for a big percentage of them. So that's just, that just told me that... The, the psychological part of their addiction actually started when they took that very first hit of marijuana. Now, marijuana isn't a physical addiction drug. It's not like heroin or cocaine or any stuff like that, but it does have a psychological effect on you because your brain will remember, your brain is always trying to fix you. No matter, yeah. no matter what's going on, your brain is, is, is trying to fix you. It doesn't want you feeling bad. It doesn't want you feeling uneasy. It doesn't want you feeling sad. So what happens is when you start to have the feelings, it, it kind of looks back and kind of goes through the thing and say, okay, I remember when you smoked marijuana, you felt good. And it's going to give you, and it's going to give you a compulsion to smoke marijuana. Um, right. It's not a physical addiction. I mean, you're not going to wake up going, oh, I got to have marijuana or something like that, but it is a psychological 
addiction, it's psychological compulsion. Right. Although I will say that the high levels of THC today might be leaning toward the physical addiction, maybe not so much when you did it, but there's even, I did, I learned this from one of our interviews that there's more THC in um, marijuana today than even four years ago. So anyway, I guess, I guess it's somewhat debatable, but David, so when did you have your, you know, your epiphany or your realization that, you know, we call it on the podcast, your point of no return, Describe that for us. What happened that made you realize you had to get clean or you were going to spend the rest of your life in jail or die or whatever? Right. So, so I'm a third striker. Um, so I realized that the next time I commit a crime, next time I get arrested, I would end up spending the rest of my life in prison. I didn't want to do that. So I seeked help through a treatment center. Um, I had been through a lot of different treatment centers before. Nothing really stuck. Um, but when I went to this certain treatment center, I was, I was able to connect with a counselor that was willing to sit down and start to kind of pull the layers of stuff that, that had been, you know, been going, I've been going through my whole life and kind of get down to that core, that core problem of why this is happening. Um, I knew that. The why question, I call them the why questions. The why questions mm-hmm. are, why am I willing to go to prison for drugs? Why am I willing to give up my family for drugs? Why am I willing to, you know, give up everything that I love for drugs, everything that I've worked for? And I knew that until I was able to answer those why questions, and, and you know, I teach this to a lot of, in a lot of treatment centers, um, that I was never going to be able to, to, to quit drugs. So I started studying about the psychological part of addiction, the, the brain and how the brain works with um, addiction and stuff like that, with euphoric recalls and euphoric memories and things like that. Um, and I started, I started reading a lot of what professors were saying about it, and I kind of took this one, this one, this one, this one, and pulled everything together and said, okay, what is it that everybody here is saying? And, and it, it all came back to my brain is remembering what to do when I, and this goes for any, any kind of addiction, gambling, sex, uh, food, social media, everything, any, any type of, anything that gives you an, a euphoric um, feeling um, is addictable. Hmm. You know what I mean? Can't, you can become addicted to it. And so I, I thought, okay, well, I knew if I didn't dedicate my life against drugs, that I was never going to be able to stop using them. Um, I was that kind of addict work. It just had to happen every single day. And um, I went to college and um, got KDAC certified. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727-314-314. 7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. 
For more information on our sponsor, Narconon Ojai, visit their website at narcononojai.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org. Or call 1-866-231-5924. That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. But that still wasn't really doing it for me. So I, I, I dug really deep into addiction. What is addiction? How does addiction work? Why, why am I making these, these, these decisions in my life? And once I found out that it wasn't really my fault, it's my brain is actually trying to help me have certain things, and I was able to understand that, then I was able to work on it. Because I didn't know that this demon was behind me the whole time, which was my brain, which was my thoughts, which was my 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 wants and stuff like that. And when I was able to actually understand what's going on, then I was able to get some, some time off of drugs to be able to clear my head, to be able to do this stuff. And... Um, because of my studies and stuff, I started thinking, wow, I have all, all this stuff that has happened in my life. I mean, I've, you know, the lot, loose loss of people, the, the uh, development that wasn't right, the right. being bullied, and, and, you know, just all this stuff that I've witnessed, prison and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, well, how can I take everything that I've experienced in my life and turn it into something positive. So I started feeling, filling this backpack up with just all kinds of stuff. Okay, this happened to me. This happened to me. This happened to me. Oh, I remember that. That was crazy and all this kind of stuff. And I was able to take this backpack, big backpack. I was able mm-hmm. to take this backpack and take everything and turn it into a positive to be able to help other people. So I knew that I wanted, I wanted to take my experiences. Um, my strength, my hope, and to be able to give it to other people. So like I said, I, I, I went to college and I, I, I stuck in my studies and I figured things out um, for myself. And um, there came the day that I, I have a sober living, we're in a, a sober living, transitional sober living that I co-founded. So it's an 81 bed sober living um, transitional sober living. So we have people with mental illness here. We have people that have addiction issues here. We have people that um, are homeless, that were homeless here. And we try to help everybody. But I'm able to practice my craft every single day of my life with people that are going through other stuff. And um, so that, that, again, keeps me sober because I feel, I feel the need that people need me to be sober and to be able to help them. And I've never had that feeling in my life. Nobody needed mm. me. Nobody wanted me. 
you know, right. and I always, I always felt that. Yep. So how long have you been clean and sober, David? I, I got clean in 2012. Okay. 2012, we opened up, uh, opened up this facility in 2014 and okay. we started strike out against drugs in 2016. Okay. Now strike out against drugs is different from the sober living facility, right? Tell me about strike out against drugs. So, strike out against. So one day I, I was on our back patio. We have an alley that's behind our, our facility. We're in downtown LA. So it's not the greatest area in the world. Mm -hmm. But where um, it's needed, you're going where it's needed. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and I noticed, so the back alley has a lot of transients, um, tents, things like that, people living in the alley. And I noticed that it was the walkway for these um, grade school kids to go up to the, the school at the end of the alley. And um, I was watching them one day, and I was, I was, I was seeing how they weren't affected by what they were seeing, you know, pipes on the ground, syringes on the ground, beer bottles on the ground, people sleeping um, in the filth and the dirt and stuff like that. And I was noticing that they weren't really affected by what they were seeing. And I thought, wow, when I moved here um, and I seen it, because I was raised in Redondo Beach, was this, you know, semi-clean area. They didn't allow transients and stuff like that. When I seen it, I was like, wow, look at this. It, it affected me just mm -hmm. to see that that type of environment. And I was noticing that it wasn't affecting these kids. And I thought, well, they're gonna they're gonna um, grow up thinking that this is okay. This is a this is okay to live this way. Um, it's normal. It's right. just it's, it's what normal. happens. And they and they see that and I thought, wow, this is something that really needs to be addressed. Um, so I thought, okay, I wanna I wanna start working with the kids. Um, drug prevention, something that I know that, that, that I can, I can help with. And I, we created strike out against drugs about two hours later. And, <laughs> um, I talked to my, I talked to my, my, my employer and about it. And because he has the nonprofit that covers everything. And he said, yeah, let's do that. And, um, it, it took off like a wildfire. Um, at first, nobody wanted to work with me because of my past and because of everything that I've been through. Um, but then I, I ended up starting to work with um, the Foundation for a Drug-Free World. And they were like, yeah, we love you. Come come on and, and, <laughs> and give us your story. And, you know, we started doing that. And, you know, it got out. I, I ended up talking to, I think the first four years, like 20,000 kids. Um, wow. The schools and everything. I mean, it was crazy how, how big it But we have a we have a very good presentation. It's like what you were saying, it's real. Um, it's, right. not, it's not somebody that has never been an addict or ever been on drugs talking, somebody that has lived through the experience. We have a very powerful, powerful presentation. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely invaluable. You know, I don't personally, <clears throat> excuse me, have a history of drug addiction. So if I stand up in bunch of a, uh, in, in front of a bunch of young kids, they're not stupid. Right. They know that. But you get up in front of a bunch of young kids and you tell them your story and they're going to go, oh, wow, this guy knows what he's talking about, you know? I'm a very loud and passionate speaker. And um, so I'm able to get their attention and um, hold their attention through the whole 
presentation. We have a PowerPoint presentation that we do um, showing the kids uh, video as well as me talking through the video. So it works out pretty good. That's awesome. And you do you use the drug-free world materials in I your do. presentation? I do. I do. Um, because their material um, is the facts about drugs, so we're able to hand that out to the, the kids. Um, we have the facts about drugs, and then we have the, the real-life story about what drugs do to you. And when we combine those together, um, you know, it's a very, very powerful presentation that I don't think anyone else is actually doing um, out here in California anyways that I know of. Yeah. So really well. David, talk about your bus, because I happened to see it on the documentary that I watched, and I thought that was just the coolest thing ever. Are you still going around in your bus? Even yeah. with well, the, the, right okay. now, no, because of COVID. Oh, um, COVID, right. The, the, bus, the bus idea came to me. I was sitting in front of my house, and there was a bus that, that came up. I'm always trying to look for different ways to be able to reach these kids, um, mm -hmm. be able to reach people that are, that are dealing with their addiction, stuff like that. So I'm always coming up with these ideas. And I seen this bus and I thought, wow, if I could get some people in the bus and be able to show the videos in the bus and they can get all their counseling and stuff in there and pamphlets and everything, that'd be kind of cool. And um, so I thought, wow, let, let me try to, I'm gonna try to do this. So I went and bought this bus and um you know tore out the, all the insides of it and turned it into like a theater the way the seatings are into the theater and put a big screen tv in the back and decorated all the insides of the power logos everywhere and um it was a big hit so we started taking it to carnivals and parades and everything else and and um we we were just we had people in there that just wouldn't come out sometimes <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, we've had we've had the, all the city officials in there, all the police departments, because we work with I work with the, the LAPD and the sheriff's LA Sheriff's Department. Um, so they've all came down and seen the bus. We've gotten all kinds of awards for wow. um, the ingenuity of the bus. Yep. And, it, and it's a great thing. We're getting ready to actually um, redo the paint job on the outside to change it up a little bit and, and make it more eye-catching when it's going down the street, but it's a, it's a great, it's a great thing. I just think that's such a brilliant idea. I mean, it's kind of like if, you know, if you can't get to all the kids you, with the materials, you'll, I mean, you'll just take it to them, you know, they right. don't have to, it's just, right. I think it's, I think it's brilliant, brilliant. If, um, if you can send me a photo of the bus, I'll put it on the video, uh, you know, like I can actually, um, we do this on YouTube as well as audio and I can put a, I can pop up the picture cause I just, I thought it was such a brilliant idea. And I think you mentioned in the documentary, you had a, a mother and her daughter on there who was on the bus all day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we, we do a lot of carnivals with it. Um, everybody loves it. They, they, they want it, they want it in every event that we do. So it's, it's, it's been a big success. We've helped a lot of people out, um, through that bus because it's, it's just, when you go inside, it's like, wow, look at this. Um, so it works out really, really well. I think that's great. David, if you had one message to share with the people uh, that listen to this podcast, what would it be about your background and education and all? What would you say? So education is key to being able to 
defeat this disease. This disease isn't going to go away. It's something that we're, we're stuck with for the rest of our life because of the psychological component um, to addiction. Learning about addiction, um, educating yourself about addiction is key to being able to defeat it. Um, you have to understand what's going on with you. You have to understand that there's stuff that you've gone through and stuff that you've experienced that you have to deal with before you're ever going to be able to get past at least even the compulsions of using drugs. I, I, I'm here with 80 people that are going through this every single day and I have to, I have to help them to deal with that. And the biggest tool that I have is education. Yep. So education is key to be able to defeat the feelings that you're having and be able to focus your feelings on something more positive than using drugs or destroying your life. Perfect. I think that's a great message. David, if people wanted to reach out to you, and I guess the bus doesn't come to Florida, so we'll say people in the Los Angeles area or anybody who just might want to reach out, how do they reach out to you? So you can go to my website, which is www.strikeoutagainstdrugs.com, or you can go to the website beaconofhope.la. Um, I'm on both of them things. Um, send me a message. I have an email, which is ds.strikeoutagainstdrugs.com. Um, send me an email. We're, we're constantly trying to keep in touch with people that need help. Um, I get emails from people all over the world that have seen my, my documentary or seen my videos and things like that. So we're able to help people, you know, far and wide. Awesome. David, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I just super appreciate you being willing to share your story. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. I hope you enjoyed the interview with David Sanchez. I apologize for the computer glitches. That's due to low band Wi-Fi at his end and not a lot we can do about that. I think a couple of things that I really took away from his podcast was, first of all, starting marijuana at age nine is just terrifying in my universe because, as I say, my granddaughter will be um, eight next month. And, yeah, that's a year away. The other thing I thought was interesting was how he just observed that the kids um, the, who walked down the alley in downtown Los Angeles just um, – kind of accepted the whole drug addiction thing as the way life is. I think that, you know, one of the things that I like hearing about someone from David and a lot of the people that we interview is that they're, they're doing something about this problem. It's very easy to think that there's nothing that can be done about it. And there's always something that can be done. There's always something you can do. If you have a loved one who's addicted, you just need to reach out. If you don't want to call our sponsor, call somebody, but when you call Narcan on Ojai, it's an anonymous call. They'll just help you. They're not there to just go, oh yeah, come here. They're going to help you however they can. And if you yourself are addicted, same message, reach out. Have a good week. We'll talk to you again next week. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narcan on Ojai. 
For more information on Narcanon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcanonojai.org. Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.